0: Hear the word of the Lord from Acts 19, 1 through 20, and then 23 to 34.
1: And it happened that while Apollos
0: was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? they said into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus.
1: This continued for two
0: years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists overtook, undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Skipping down to 23. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. Uh, My name's Gary Miles, if you don't know me. I'm uh, one of the elders here at Kishwaukee. And as we mentioned, Tom is on mission in Sierra Leone this week. He'll be back next week to finish up his series in Ephesians. Um, Tom gave me quite a bit of latitude this morning on what I wanted to preach on, uh, but honestly, I felt led to dig a little bit more into the Church of Ephesus. So when the original Star Wars movie, this was a trilogy by George Lucas, came out, I was in high school, so that was 1977. I know I'm dating myself. Following that first release of Star Wars, there were two other episodes, Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. Well, those movies were classic in the sense of good and evil and the line that sometimes gets blurred between them. Pretty decent movies, I guess. But it wasn't until 1999 before what became known as the prequel trilogy was first released. So it was 22 years to finally get the backstory. How did Darth Vader come to be and what happened to the influence of Obi-Wan Kenobi? all these questions finally got answered then of course people wanted to know but what happened after the return of the Jedi well there was a long planned sequel again it was a trilogy but it wasn't released until 2015 so it was 32 years after the last original but people wanted to know the full story right they wanted to know what happened so I know you're probably thinking right now Gary who cares And probably nobody. But it got me thinking about the church in Ephesus, and I wondered how that church came to be so important. You know, I looked back over the last year and discovered that between Eric, and Trevor, and Tom, all three of them hit major messages, all from the Book of Ephesians. It, it's a beautiful letter. focuses on God's purpose, His grace, and what God desires of His church, the people, us. Well, it made me wonder how people in Ephesus even became followers of Jesus in the first place and then what happened to them over time so to fill out the story a bit for us I decided I would do Ephesus the prequel and the sequel you don't have to wait 22 years for the answers to those questions either but actually I believe there are some very practical lessons we can learn from from this uh, reading and we can learn for Kishwaukee and for every church And I think specifically for Kishwaukee as we prepare a new chapter in our ministry with Pastor Nick. So before we turn our attention to God's word, uh, let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you will open our minds and hearts to understand your word this morning and what you would have us learn. I ask specifically that this would not be simply a message for this moment, but a truth by which we are changed and will live out. I pray this in Jesus' name. So first, let me put up a map so you can get a visual of where Ephesus actually is located. Tom has mentioned this, but it's on the western side of Turkey. It's on the shores of the Aegean Sea. By the way, just for reference, Tom's down here, Sierra Leone. Um, Here's a map zoomed in a little bit more. You can kind of see, uh, yeah, for reference, here's Israel, Jerusalem. So you can kind of see where we are. At the time of Paul, it still had access to the Aegean Sea through a river that created an inland harbor, but that's now been silted over, so they don't have access to that anymore. But back then, it gave excellent access to much of the Roman Empire. Its location was at the intersection of trade routes, which allowed Ephesus to become a major commercial city. It was the capital of the Roman province of Asia, making it an important political city in the Roman Empire. And again, because of its location, it became what we would call a very cosmopolitan and wealthy city. It was one of the largest cities, had a population estimated to be over 400,000. So imagine a city back then, twice the population of Rockford. It's really astounding, actually. It also is most famously known for being the center of worship for the fertility goddess, Artemis. The temple to Artemis is one of the seven ancient wonders of the world here's a picture of some of the ruins of the temple in Ephesus today and here's an artist rendition of what it generally would have looked like back then it's just a massive massive temple I don't have time to go into all those details but you can imagine the strong influence worshiping that God had in that city now I suppose you could liken it to New York City today it's wealthy it's cosmopolitan it's at an intersection of trade very influential And plenty of idols to worship so it was into this environment that Paul chose to build a church how did that happen and what can we learn from it for Kishwaukee 2,000 years later well let's find out if we back up to the previous chapter 18 in Acts we find Paul's already in Ephesus and he's there with a couple familiar names Priscilla and Aquila they were both followers of Jesus he's there a short time speaking to the Jews in the synagogue and then he leaves but promises to return. He then goes to Caesarea and Jerusalem and then Antioch. From here he begins what we call or what we know as his third missionary journey, finding winding his way through the interior and returning to Ephesus. So again, here's a map of that. He starts here in Antioch. He works his way through the interior, ends up in Ephesus, stays there, and the rest of the journey he works his way all the way around to Corinth. He ends up coming all the way back, eventually works his way all the way back down, ending up in Jerusalem. That's his third missionary journey. We also read that another familiar name, Apollos, made his way to Ephesus while Paul was gone. So the start of the church in Ephesus, we can see, was with Paul's initial stop, Priscilla and Aquila teaching after Paul left, and then Apollos coming also to teach. But soon Apollos left to go to Corinth, and it's during this time that Paul returned so now the time is roughly 53 A.D. okay just for reference that'll be important later so this is where we pick it up in Acts chapter 19 and I do love the book of Acts it's kinda like reading an action novel to me there's just so much going on it's kinda dizzying sometimes but let's see what happened in Ephesus so here's the prequel titled something missing And you'll notice, Paul immediately recognizes upon his arrival that something is missing. Through the work of Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila, Paul finds some disciples. It says about 12 men in all. But Paul is compelled to ask, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now you have to wonder, what did Paul not see in these disciples to ask such a question? Is it a lack of love? Is it no joy? No faith? What was it that was missing? Well, what does he do? He immediately baptizes them into the name of the Lord Jesus, and the text describes how the Holy Spirit came on them in a very powerful way. More on that in a minute. But the point I want to make here is Paul set out to baptize them and to teach and make disciples, just as Jesus instructed us to do in the Great Commission. But I want to focus in on what Paul then said about doing. So let's look at the text. I want to start in verse 8 was typical of Paul he usually would go to the Jews in the synagogue first then to the Gentiles when he got pushed back he took the disciples with him, and he taught in the lecture hall every day for two years think about that every single day for two years Paul taught and discipled people to build and mature the church and this is just part of his third missionary journey well the first takeaway here I I submit, is it requires commitment to build a thriving church serving the Lord. It takes commitment. I think back on this church, just in my time here over 30 years, but to recognize it's been going on since 1844. That's 178 years. So to put that in perspective, consider if this church continues to serve another 178 years. That would be the year 2200 try to imagine that this church has been committed to serving a long time and I look at the people that continue to teach they organize Bible studies they mentor they teach the youth year after year after year it's a huge commitment and it's clearly one that's done out of love for Christ well what was the result in Ephesus people were changed because when the gospel is proclaimed people are changed. The text tells us God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, people cured of illness, evil spirits driven out, so much so that it says people tried to invoke the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, to their own advantage, for power or money. It specifically mentions the funny story of the seven sons of Sceva when one day the evil spirits answered back, Jesus, I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? I think it's like a comedy sketch actually but let me say a little something about the miracles performed through Paul and then the earlier reference of the outworking of the Holy Spirit we need to be careful when we read the book of Acts in particular that we don't draw a false understanding of the works of the Holy Spirit yes he works in our lives and in fact sometimes in miraculous ways but we should also understand that what God did in this particular time and place was his will to expect to see miracles of the Holy Spirit as normal or typical all the time it's not necessarily how to understand that text the Holy Spirit works in us to build our faith convict us of our sin to sanctify us to illuminate God's truth to empower us to God's will and much more but much of that works out in everyday ordinary living as we try our best to love Jesus and our neighbor may at times seem quite unremarkable. Don't you believe it? Speaking for myself, turning a sinner towards God's will is nothing short of miraculous. There's a lot we could talk about in the Holy Spirit. You know, it'd be nice if we did a sermon series on that here at some point, but I don't have the time to go into that deeper. But, rest assured, the Holy Spirit is at work in Christ's church. Okay, back to the text. Notice we read that the man with the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them, gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Well, you can imagine that made quite an impression on people, right? In fact, it says, When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done a number would practice sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly when they calculated the value of the scrolls total came to 50,000 drachmas now i need to make this point real clear people were changed certainly due to the events they were seeing right they were changed but being seized with fear and holding the name of jesus in high honor is not the same as people coming to a saving faith in jesus as lord but it does say many who already believed now came and openly confessed what they had done that's repentance a number who practiced sorcery it says burn their scrolls publicly again that's a public expression of repentance and that's a clear change in who they were but then notice this the next line verse 20 says in this way the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power you see it was seeing people changed lives impacted people repenting people giving up money lots of it to follow this Jesus character that caused the word of the Lord to spread widely and grow in power was not the miracles and the actions of the evil spirits that did it exactly it was the people who they saw every day changing their lives that made an impression on all the other people well what was the change it's those very things that Tom's been preaching about for the past three months. central message of that letter, as Tom has said over and over again, is what it means to walk in Christ, what life should look like as a follower of Jesus Christ. It should be different from the world. It should change us. How we interact in our relationships, how we speak, what we do with our time and resources, how we do our work. Gentlemen, how we treat our wives, ladies, how we treat your husband's parents and children how you interact you bet the world should see a difference now for some who have been following the Lord a long time it may be hard to recognize a change but it's there you might think of it like looking back at your high school yearbook year to year you don't think you really changed hardly that much right till you look back at your yearbook picture now you can debate whether that's better or not I don't know but the Holy Spirit is constantly and forever at work in ch- to change us more and more towards the image of Christ now sometimes that's dramatic usually it's more gradual okay so the gospel's power to change lives also results in another truth the gospel is contagious when truth is proclaimed it's contagious we need to remember that now remember how else this started two things Paul baptizing men in the Holy Spirit and Paul's commitment to teaching every day about the truth of Jesus Christ. Just let me remind you of Jesus' great commission. He said, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Baptizing them, teaching them to be disciples. That's what Paul did. And the result? The church grew. That's what we're called to do for Christ's church today. And every day. So, commitment to discipleship, people's lives will be changed, and when truth is proclaimed, you can trust the gospel is contagious. Now, if you're tracking here, you can tell I'm channeling my inner Sesame Street learning, focusing on C words, commitment, changed, contagious. I thought about using the cookie monster for my graphic, but I didn't want to distract people about cookies. I know you all have "CS for Cookie" running through your head right now. That song, don't you? Yes. Okay, let me go on. But we also see a couple other truths playing out. Notice that he, what he said about the value of the scrolls—they totaled fifty thousand drachmas that they burned in today's dollars. That's about twelve million dollars. By any measure, that was a lot of potential wealth given up to follow Christ. The Bible tells us over and over: there's a cost to following Jesus, right? This case it was future income and the loss of, I guess, what would be called an asset of value. Now we need need to need to remember there's a difference between value and cost. Those scrolls didn't really cost that much, but they were valued for their incantations and the supposed future income potential from that. So we intuitively understand the concept of value as opposed to cost. The cost we bear today for following Christ. Maybe wide-ranging, sacrificing advancement at work, for example, because it would pull us away from our family or the church too much. That's a cost. How we steward our money certainly can feel like a cost. How we invest our time absolutely is a cost. The list goes on. But when you come to understand that all we have is God's, and he graciously provides it for us, it's no longer seen as a cost because the value of what we really cherish, following Christ, well, it's infinite. It's eternal again a lot more I could say on that but I need to press on so not only there's a cost but we can expect conflict when Jesus proclaimed in Ephesus you'll notice the conflict just started right away when Paul was speaking in the synagogue it said some became obstinate and maligned the way but it got worse not surprisingly when certain people's income was, was threatened so the riot in Ephesus shows us the power of the purse as the text describes it, a silversmith, Demetrius, argued that the craftsmen and workers who made a living off of the worshipers of Artemis were having their income affected because this fellow, Paul, has led astray large numbers of people. Well, as be- people became believers in the true God, they no longer were visiting the temple and the shrines to Artemis, nor buying their crafts and idols they made. It cut into their business. Notice what it says. There's danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Notice his first concern is lost reputation of the trade. You can translate that to mean lost profits. And then secondary, he mentions the great goddess will be robbed of her divine majesty. Well, I don't know what to say about that, other than not much of a god, really, is she. But you can see from the text that Demetrius whipped up the crowd into a frenzy, such that it turned into a mob shouting for two hours, "Great as Artemis of the Ephesians!" "Great as Artemis of the Ephesians!" Two hours. It was so mob-like that the text says in verse 32, "The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people." did not even know why they were there I just have to say it as as an aside some things never change we see this sort of thing happen with mobs throughout history And do you notice about conflict more often than not it stems from competing idols or loves particularly when it impacts people personally it's not always a rejection of the truth of the message we live in a cultural moment where that is as true as ever now Jesus warned us clearly that we should expect conflict right he didn't sugarcoat it He says in John 15 if the world hates you keep in mind that it hated me first if you belonged to the world it would love you as its own as it is you do not belong to the world but I have chosen you out of the world that is why the world hates you those are strong words But he also reminds us in John 16 I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace in this world you will have trouble but take heart I have overcome the world now I wish I could say conflict is only external but we know it isn't we all fall times at at times in this broken world and occasionally it causes conflict even within the church we know that sometimes that conflict is good, maybe even necessary to get back on mission. Sometimes it is a distraction from that mission. But let me say this. If there's any place on earth, any group of people where repentance, grace, forgiveness should be the antidote to conflict, it should be the church. It should be us. Well, what do we see in Ephesus? Paul persevered through the conflict, and Christ's church flourished. We're called to do the same. Okay, commitment to discipleship, people's lives will be changed, the gospel is contagious, and there is a cost to, call up to following Jesus, and we can expect conflict. As I said, these are some good practical reminders, I think, for any church, or particularly Kish, at this time. So, that's the prequel. Out of all that a very solid Jesus loving church grew in that important part of the world but now Paul leaves around 55 AD he writes his letter we know as Ephesians roughly four or five years later that's a letter that obviously helped mature the church in the region but what happened to them over time well I titled this the sequel something lost we find the rest of the story Paul Harvey used to say and again I'm dating myself in Revelation chapter 2 I'm gonna read that real quickly and then I just want to touch on one thing that I think we can learn from them and then I'll close Revelation 2 it says to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand walks among the seven golden lampstands I know your deeds your hard work and your perseverance I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. So this is the first of seven letters to the chur- seven churches in Asia that Christ instructed John to write. John recorded Revelation most people would say about 95 AD so we're now talking some 40 years after Paul left Ephesus so as much as two full generations later what does Christ say to the church in Ephesus what I want to focus on is what changed for the church and notice he says starting in verse 2 I know your deeds your hard work and your perseverance I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not I found them false. You have persevered. You have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Good deeds, hard work, perseverance. They tested and held to the truth. They endured hardships. They didn't grow weary. All signs of a healthy, thriving church. And yet, Christ says there's something in the church at Ephesus that was lost. He said they had forsaken their first love. What was that? It was Christ himself. You see, they were working hard. They were persevering. They're doing good stuff. But why? While they were busy doing stuff, they seemed to have lost the main reason for doing it in the first place their outward expression of love for Jesus Christ himself. Christ puts it in perspective by telling them to consider how far they have fallen. Now, we get a hint of the depth of that love in Paul's prayer for them in his letter. Listen, I'm going to start. It's in chapter 3, verse 16. Again, this is the letter that we've been studying, letter to the Ephesians. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. There's a sort of bottom line in our work, our mission, even our lives as Christians. Above all else, we're to love Christ. And everything we do is to love him it's to be because of that love. It's for that love. It's with that love, and it's in that love. Now, please don't hear in this that we can go about our lives and do whatever we want, and doesn't really matter because, hey, we love Christ, right? That's not what I'm saying. Rather, you can expect that it, it's because of that very love that we should be changed, right? Our lives should reflect that. Have we made mistakes? Sure. Do we stumble at times? You bet. Do we get weary and discouraged? Who doesn't? Does our pride sometimes cloud our judgment and get in the way? Well, I sure know mine does. Do we sometimes lose sight of our purpose? Of course we do. We're sinners. We're trying to do our best to follow Christ through all the messiness that life brings. But you know, time and again, this church, Kishwaukee, has gone back to the well that sustains faith and life. That's Jesus Christ and our love for him. That's what Jesus is simply reminding us of here. So I said there's a sort of bottom line to our mission. I want to close with this story. Um, about 20-some years ago, um, I was sitting in a doctor's office doing what everybody used to do sitting in a doctor's office pick up one of those things you used to call magazines I don't even know if they have magazines in doctor's office anymore but I flipped it open it was a sports magazine I flipped it open um, and it was a uh, scouting report for professional tennis now yeah I like ten- I like tennis but it's not like I'm a nut about tennis but I thought this would be interesting and you know what scouts do right they look at physical attributes look at their skills you know Positive stuff, their attitude, all sorts of stuff they look at, to try to see if that person's going to be successful as a professional athlete. I was reading through this, and one of them caught my eye. It's very short. And this is what he said about this athlete. It's tennis, okay? Weak backhand, slow to the net, inconsistent serve, wins matches. That was it weak backhand slow to the net inconsistent serve wins matches he wasn't perfect he had his faults right but he did what the point of the whole game was you see and in the end loving Christ is kind of our aim right it's the bottom line of it and I think if we keep doing that all that other stuff will work itself out let's pray Lord, this is your church you've been ever faithful to it for nearly 180 years we pray this morning that as we approach yet a new chapter in this church's mission for your kingdom that we will remain focused on you and the truth of truth of the gospel and may our love for Christ remain the single guiding aim and purpose and result of Kishwaukee as we soon begin yet another new chapter of ministry together By your Spirit, give us the courage to proclaim Christ and Him crucified and that we too would reflect changed hearts and minds and lives. And all that for the sake of your kingdom and your glory. Amen.